politics. And also, I think a big story of politics today is particularly the Republican Party and how it's changing. And I thought Bevin was a good representative of that. So that means I assumed I would get to cover five years of Matt Bevin. I was wrong, it turned out. But that said, I think still, still being here in a place that I sort of know but has an interesting politics. I mean, I mean, for example, D.C., I think Hillary got 88% of the From the digital journalists of WDRB.com, this is Uncovered, a behind-the-scenes look at stories affecting education, business, criminal justice, and more in Louisville, Kentucky. And now, for the show. This is Chris Otts of WDRB.com, and this week we're reaching outside the walls of WDRB to bring in a special guest journalist to the show. Perry Bacon is one of my favorite political writers, and I've wanted to have him on the podcast for quite a while now. He's with 538, the data journalism website known for its smart coverage of a number of topics, and it turns out Perry is from Louisville originally, and he's recently returned in the last few years to live in his hometown. The coronavirus, of course, is the overwhelming news topic these days, and so we talked about how that's changing politics nationally and locally, about Andy Bashir, Matt Bevin, Mitch McConnell, and President Trump, and we got into the recent controversy about the court decision barring Louisville's mayor from an alleged plan to interfere with church services on Easter. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. As always, we welcome any feedback on this podcast. Just send an email to uncovered at wdrb.com. And now, here's my conversation with Perry Bacon Jr. Perry, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Chris. I want to start with the arc of your career You work at 538, which specializes in data journalism. Uh, Before that, you were at NBC News, uh, also Time Magazine and The Washington Post, and you're from Louisville originally. So how did you get into political journalism? So um, I kind of got my start because I... uh, I liked writing, I liked sports, I liked politics, and so... When I was a senior in high school, I wrote for three newspapers at the same time. I wrote for the Brook and Breck at Mail High School. Um, I wrote for the Louisville Cardinal, which at that point had some program where they let high school students you know, cover UofL basketball and UofL football, and also I covered UofL soccer and volleyball for that matter as well. And I also um, had a little internship where I basically answered the phone um, at the Metro desk for the Courier-Journal. So I was kind of always sort of a news junkie um, and a newspaper junkie. I went to college and I wrote for the, both the news section and the sports section. And at some point I, was, I sort of realized that sports was going to be less fun to watch if it was also my job. And so, uh, and so I sort of moved off the sports path a little bit while I was in college and got more into the sort of politics and news path. Um, I sort of knew I wanted to cover national politics, so I did some internships focused on that kind of thing when I was in college. And then 
I got lucky at a right at a school because uh, I got a job at Time Magazine, so that was that was you know that was good and lucky and done a lot of internships and that helped and all. And my job was to be sort of a low level staffer at Time Magazine. And the way Time Magazine worked then was there would be people who wrote the main article, and then there'd be five people who sort of contributed notes to it. And so I got the Time Magazine at the time, which they had had a, a big buyout at that point. And so they had a lot of older people who wrote the story still, but they had very few younger people who, they, who wanted to sort of go out and, and do the reporting and travel a lot. And this is in 2002, so I kind of got hired, and then there was a big presidential campaign with all these candidates back in, back then. So uh, for a while, I was assigned to this guy named Howard Dean, who no one had really heard of, but then he became the front runner for a while. And I guess I did some good work during that time because Dean sort of faded away, but I got put on the John Kerry plane for the general election, and that was my start. So I did basically five years of national politics at Time Magazine. I did five years of national politics at the Washington Post. Um, I did about five years at NBC News where I was on TV on MSNBC a lot, and also my main job was to write for NBCNews.com and kind of help them develop more kind of enterprising, in-depth kind of political coverage on their website. And then these, and then early in 2017, I wanted to try something a little bit different than what I had been doing, which has been sort of like political reporting, you know, beat reporting, cover the Congress, cover the White House, cover the campaign. So I've been working at 538, and my job has been to cover Congress, the president, the campaign. But we have a, but, but the focus of 530 is much more, 530 is known for, of course, um, its numbers and its data and that kind of coverage. But I've also had an opportunity to like just be sort of more enterprising and more creative because 538 is kind of, probably like a second read for most people. It's not like, you know, you maybe you read the New York Times or you read the Courier Journal or you listen to NPR. That's your first read. So if people are coming to a site like 538, they're looking for something maybe a little offbeat. So it gives you a little more freedom as the writer. Well, I certainly appreciate that you got your start in part at the Louisville Cardinal. I am on the board of directors uh, of the nonprofit that oversees the Louisville Cardinal, and it's it's tough going, but we are trying to to keep that outlet alive uh, because a lot of really good journalists in our community and elsewhere have gotten their start at the Cardinal. Uh, When you first joined 538, I believe you were in Washington, D.C., and then you have recently, in the last few years, moved back to Louisville. Tell us about that. So I got hired at 538 in, uh, let's say, February 2017, right around when Trump started, basically, uh, as presidency started. And so my main, so I had been in D.C. 15 years by this time. And there were some personal reasons I like, you know, I, my family's in Louisville. Louisville's a good city. You know, you can have, you can afford a, a standalone house here in a way you can in D.C. on a journalist salary. So there were some good reasons to do that sort of personally. But also, A, I had been in D.C. for 15 years, so I felt like I could predict what Nancy Pelosi would do before she did it. So I felt like I had a good sense of that milieu of politics. But more importantly, I think there's a lot of store, a lot of the things that are happening in Washington often originate in the states. And there's a sort of a lot of feedback between what happens in the states and what happens in the, in the, in the president at the national level. I mean, the obvious example is like, 
a figure, a, a sort of generic Democrat who was not that exciting, but who people thought would win, who was kind of next in line, named Jack Conway, ran against this kind of businessman, insurgent Republican named Matt Bevin in 2015. And then the Hillary Clinton Trump election had some of those same outlines of it. So for me, I wanted to be outside of D.C. a little bit because I thought there were stories I might find and, I, and that, I, that I would, I, I knew the national stuff well enough where I thought maybe if I know some state and local politics really well, that'll sort of make my reporting a little sharper overall. And I think that's been true. And then I, you know, I grew up in a place, and also I think a big story of politics today is particularly the Republican Party and how it's changing. And I thought Bevin was a good representative of that. So that means I assumed I would get to cover five years of Matt Bevin. I was wrong, it turned out. But that said, I think still, still being here in a place that I sort of know but has an interesting politics. I mean, I mean, for example, D.C., I think Hillary got 88% of the votes in D.C. So it's not a particularly... Uh, politically diverse community versus here, I guess, uh, you know, Hillary got like 60-40 in Louisville, but Kentucky itself is a state Trump won. So it's a much more interesting place politically than where I came from, particularly in this part of my career where I had been in Washington and sort of knew that milieu really well. That's interesting because I've noticed uh, when I see your stories on the 538 site, there's no dateline on them. And uh, on the times when you're on their podcast, uh, there's not really a mention of like, Perry Bacon, our uh, red state uh, resident uh, expert. Uh, So why don't you guys play that up a bit more? Because I do imagine most of the staff there is based in New York or otherwise on the coast. So it's interesting. We actually have one thing that was good about 538 is we actually have a lot of people who work remotely. From even sorry, even pre coronavirus, we had a lot of people who worked remote. Like our main, like our editor in chief, Nate Silver, and most of the management is in New York City. But a lot of the, particularly the reporters, they are very, they're very much like if you are an expert in healthcare, you can cover cover it from anywhere. So five thirty has been is a sort of New York City base, but it's like has a lot of other staffers, other places. So we don't put datelines on stories in part because most of us, I think, uh, I think a pretty large part of the staff, particularly the writers, don't live in New York or D.C., and we're just covering our stories without necessarily focusing on that. And I don't think I've done necessarily a ton of stories that were, I think I did a story about Bevin, a profile of Bevin, but when I was still living in D.C., and we did have, I think, a Frankfurt or Louisville dateline for that. But otherwise, I've not done a lot of stories that have been purely about, um, I am in Kentucky, here's what I think. And on some level, I've tried to kind of avoid that in a certain way, I just sort of think being, I, I don't love the people who are like, I live in Michigan, I understand real America. Like, I, th- I find this stuff a little bit silly, because I think New York City and D.C. are real America, too. And, you know, they're just as American as Kentucky is, so I don't really play that up too much, but I think it's been useful to have the respect of having lived in D.C. and now live here, just in the sense that I have seen sort of a few different parts of the country in terms of politics, and lived those um, experiences. Perry, I want to move to some of your more recent pieces on 538, and I've noticed that a lot of the headlines end in question marks, uh, which makes it really easy for me to ask you about them. Uh, (laughs) One says, uh, do Democrats and Republicans view the coronavirus pandemic differently? Depends on what you ask them. So what are some of those differences? So generally what you see is in the broadest sense, like 
in early March and late February, you would see these dramatic differences where Democrats and Republicans saw the threat of the coronavirus much differently. And the Democrats saw it much as very serious and Republicans tend to downplay does the virus exist, not does the virus exist, but how big of a problem is the virus? Are you, are you personally concerned about the virus, et cetera? So that was in, you know, that was in the time when Fox News and Trump were also, to some extent, downplaying uh, the outbreak and what the, what the severity of it was. What you now see is generally Democrats are more worried still than Republicans are in polls. We're talking about Democrats say they're, 90% of Democrats say they're worried and 77% of Republicans do. So, so you sort of have partisan differences, but those differences don't really matter that much. Everyone is very concerned. Now, where the questions come, and then also when you ask people, do you, do you like how your, how your governor is handling uh, the virus outbreak? People are generally very positive about their governor. They're generally positive about their mayor, for example. They're, uh, they're positive about NIH. They're positive about things like that. Where do they differ? Unsurprisingly, um, they differ on the federal government and Donald Trump. And specifically, Democrats tend to think the federal government and Donald Trump are handling the outbreak poorly. Republicans don't agree with that. So the questions you ask about the virus, so in general, the virus questions range really depends on does the question international politics and then sort of people polarize in the way you'd expect them to. But that's important because in general, most people are social distancing. Like these stories read about a few churches are meeting, but most people are following the rules or the guidelines, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or not at this point. Do you think that perhaps some of these differences between how uh, people in different political spectrums view uh, the virus was really just an initial thing. You know, at first the president was seemingly downplaying the threat to the country. He said the way the Democrats were talking about it was, quote, their new hoax. Uh, but now there's a disaster declaration in all 50 states. And it does seem like the reality has sunk in across the country of how serious this pandemic is. So I wonder if some of those differences will fade with time. Yes. So the perceptions have faded mostly, but I do think that 10 to 15% of difference we're seeing surveys say that the people who think it's most severe is still all the Democrats and most Republicans. And that gap, I don't think is, is probably a little bit about Trump and Fox, but I think it's also about in general, who are the voices in America saying the virus is a really big deal? I would say, A, the national media, and I would say, and even the local media, and then, so the media, A, and then B, public health experts, scientists, etc. So we have a lot of survey evidence suggesting that people who are conservative tend to be more skeptical of science, scientists, science-based arguments, and the media. So it's not. So I do think that the messengers here are people Democrats are inclined to very much trust, and Republicans are somewhat less inclined to trust. You mentioned governors. I'm curious if uh, you've been able to tune in to any of the daily uh, Andy show, so to speak, out of Frankfurt. Governor Bashir doing a one-hour news conference every day. Uh, curious your perceptions of how he has been handling this situation. So this is one of these odd stories to where um, two things interesting happened. First of all, uh, I was not watching the press conferences day to day, either by Trump or Bashir. In the, I tend to 
you know, because I'm not a day-to-day reporter this way, so I tend to, like, look on Twitter, you know, see what people, see what the reporters who do follow them are saying about it, go back and read an article about what they said, because, like, watching a press conference to me is, is often sort of not that educational. But in this case, I was not watching the Bashir press conferences, but I, but I called my brother, and he said, I can't talk to you now, he texted me, because I have to watch uh, Andy Bashir's press conference. And my wife basically did this as watched, started watching them every day. I mean, previous to this, I knew a lot about Andy Bashir, and most people just knew he was the person who they, didn't, who they voted for because he wasn't Matt Bevan. So the, the interest in Bashir surprised me and how much people were talking about how comforting he is and so on. So this just struck me as being sort of out of nowhere. And so I have been watching sort of since then. I came to these sort of late. Um, I don't, I mean, I sort of think this is, I'll be honest, I sort of think it's one of these things where the press conferences are informative and kind of nonpartisan and kind of, they're, they're fine. I, I think in this case, Bashir is benefiting from, from the contrast between he and President Trump, and also the contrast between he and how people think Matt Bevan would have behaved in a similar instance. Um, and I'll say the second thing about Bashir is that I talked to my editor at 538. You know, the one thing I'm very conscious of is not pitching stories about Kentucky because I live here that are sort of national readers are going to find who cares. It's, you know, Kentucky's not a huge state. But in this case, I asked my editor about Andy Bashir, and he said, I think I've already read four stories about Andy Bashir. We shouldn't do one. It was sort of one of these things where it was like Andy Bashir had gotten too much fame uh, already, which surprised me. But in general, yes, I think he has handled this well. And I think I've read, there's been stories in the, in, on NPR, on its website, um, in, on the radio. The Intercept did one. He's, there's been, CNN did one. There's been a lot of coverage of him. And I think generally it has been one of these things where it's surprising that a governor in the South, if you look at the map, if you look at the states that have issued stay-at-home orders the latest, often those have been in the South. The big difference, of course, being those have been, usually Republican governors have been very sort of slower on this, but Bashir is a Democrat and he took this pretty seriously from the beginning. So I think he, he deserves credit, while I also think it's a little bit of a, he's not, you know, saying odd things like Trump is saying. Perry, I think both of us were surprised, certainly I was, that Matt Bevin ended up being upset uh, by Andy Bashir in the election last fall. And I think it's a really interesting counterfactual to ponder what things would be like in Kentucky right now had Matt Bevin still been the governor. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. I think it's... I don't mean to be overly partisan. I think it's, I think worse. I mean, it's, I think it's like pretty clear that Bevan would have been hesitant to take this seriously because he is he's kind of of the Fox News world. He would have been wary to issue a stay-at-home order because the president, when the, when the in the period in which the president was sort of hesitant about uh, taking this on seriously, you can just imagine Bevan's press conferences would have been less uh, kind of just the facts and have a little bit more of let me criticize Greg Fisher, let me criticize any Democrat I can talk to. You just, I just, I think there would have been. Bashir has done a good job in projecting a sense of calm, and I just don't think that's ever what you, whatever you think about Biden, I mean, sort of Bevin's ideology, he was not someone who projected a lot of calm, and I think that's what I would be curious. I don't, a daily press conference with Bevin, I think he would have been trying to do some of the same things Trump has done that people, even Republicans, don't like, and so I think that's what I, so I, so I think Bevin would have handled this much differently, we would have, we would have had probably fewer restrictions issued later, and I just think he, his, his manner would have been to be sort of create division at times. 
Moving back to the national scene and the coverage that you've been providing lately, one of your recent articles was titled, Why Bernie Sanders Lost. So why did Bernie, who uh, around the time of Nevada seemed like he was uh, really in the lead of the Democratic primary and it turned so swiftly against him, why did that happen? So we made basically three points in that article. We One, we argued that uh, Bernie made some mistakes. Like he didn't, he, he probably, like whatever you think of Medicare for all as a policy, it doesn't, a lot of Democratic voters thought that would mean you, the candidate lost the election to Trump. So I think there's some, he didn't, you know, he, he lost in 2016 because he did terribly in the South and among black voters. And he seems to have not fixed those mistakes because he's lost in 2020 because he did terribly in the South and among black voters. So there were some mistakes his campaign made. But the other things we said in the story were A, you know, like, Basically, all basically the entire Democratic establishment endorsed Joe Biden at some point in this primary. So it may have been the case that Warren and Sanders, particularly, the Democratic Party just and the establishment just may have done everything possible to stop those two people from winning, and that may have been out of out of his control. And the third thing is, you know, Sanders finished in second place in both these last two primaries. But I sort of wonder if that's just because he has a very intense but fairly small base. I mean, it's just hard for me to see the Democratic Party picking a 70-year-old white man, self-described socialist who is not officially a Democrat in either race. So on some level, I wonder if Sanders, we think Sanders finished in second, but really he was not the second most likely person to win. Like if Hillary doesn't run in 2016, does Bernie Sanders finish in second or finish in first, or does Biden run instead of Hillary and Biden wins in 2016? I think the I think the scenario is more likely that Biden or Hillary wins than Bernie Sanders does. This might seem like a completely superfluous question given the very serious public health emergency that we have right now. But how do you think the disruption of this whole uh, pandemic might scramble things and change the dynamic, if at all, uh, of the presidential race in the fall? So this is a hard question. So I guess the first thing we do know is I think we have some we have one impact already happened, which is I think that the dynamics of the Bernie Sanders versus Biden primary were really changed by the pandemic. And it seems to be, once it became clear that you couldn't really have campaign events, there wouldn't be a ton of debates. Like, I don't think Bernie could have came back anyway, but once this pandemic really hit, I think not only was it hard for him to do the kind of campaign stuff that you'd want to do to come back, but the polls suggest voters were kind of, Democratic voters were kind of ready for this primary to end because now there's a really serious thing happening in the country. So that's one direct impact, which I think that it probably ended Bernie's campaign a little prematurely. In terms of the general election between Biden and Trump, all the polling I've seen is like the polls don't look a whole lot different than before, which is that Biden has a narrow, you know, three points, five points on average lead. Biden leads among with with white people with college degrees and he leads among uh, minority, non-white voters, minority voters. And then Trump has this big lead with white voters without college degrees, which, of course, helps you in the electoral college. So I still think the elect, at least right now, the election is exactly the same as I would have said, you know, without the coronavirus, which is that Biden is most likely going to win the national popular vote, but he may not win the electoral college because of Wisconsin, Michigan, etc. So nothing is really that different sitting here today, right now. 
Now, if it becomes like you know, you had these stories in the New York Times and the Post last last few days, which really lay out how Trump kind of underestimated and underprepared for the coronavirus outbreak. Now, do those stories and things like that set in in like eventually? Are we eventually at a place where? Even Republicans turn away from Trump, kind of the way Republicans turned away from George Bush in 2007 amid the Iraq War and Hurricane Katrina. I don't know. I tend to think that partisanship is much harder in this era and that no matter what Trump does, he gets between 42 and 46 percent of the vote and probably closer to 46 and 42. I tend to think this will be a close election because people just... Most people are just going to vote for the party they've identified with throughout. Trump's approval ratings have been incredibly steady throughout the four years, no matter what has happened, even though there's been a very crazy four years, I'd say. So I tend to think nothing has really changed. And I say that about down ballot, too, is I just think that if Trump runs a campaign and says you have to elect me and elect Republicans in Congress to support me, I tend to think the electorate might not change that much. But when I say that much, I still think that... I would have said, you know, in February, the Democrats have some chance of winning the presidency, winning the House and winning the Senate. And have those chances went up slightly? I think probably just because this this may be one of these stories where even if uh, voters in Wisconsin uh, like how Trump has handled this or don't think it's too bad, maybe there's a wave of two to three points in the Democrats way, which could make a difference. So I think there's a possibility this is kind of a. Trump loses the election by a lot, but the data so far does suggest we are still pretty much where we were in February. Well, I've heard some takes that uh, this thing is such a big deal that basically Biden is kind of a passive uh, sort of factor here and that the whole election really will come down to a binary referendum. Did President Trump handle the pandemic well or not? But perhaps you think it's not quite that simple. In part because the numbers suggest when people are asked, how did you handle the, how did Trump handle the coronavirus? They give the same answers they would give to who you're voting for. So this, so it may not, so it may require, so my sense is that whether Trump voters think truly in their hearts, think he handled this great or not. I think in some ways saying Trump handled the virus, handled this big thing wrong is like saying I'm voting for somebody else, which people tend not, which at this point, like I said, the, when the data shows that, like right now, Trump has a 90% approval rating among Republicans. At some point, Bush's went down in 07 and 08 to the, to the, I think the upper 70s, 60s at times. And that's the core question is like, we, we sort of know no matter what happens, lots of Democrats are going to vote against Trump no matter what. Even if he handled this well, they were going to vote against him. I think independents are mixed. But I think does he lose any points among his core base? Is the, and particularly, I might say, the Democrats have done really well in the suburbs in 2018. Does that, and I think we're really talking about sort of white voters with college degrees. We're really trying to, I mean, suburbs are more diverse than that, but I think we're really talking about that block of the public. And that block of the public was narrowly for Hillary in 2016. Do they become much more for Hillary, I think, is the core question of the election. Speaking of the fall election, let's talk about uh, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. It would seem he's fairly safe in Kentucky, a state that President Trump won by 30 points. 
Uh, however, Trump was unable to deliver a victory for Matt Bevin. Wondering how you handicap the chances of an upset in that race in the fall. Um, I think they're fairly low, and I would just say that because I'm in 2016, you had this election. I think this is the first time it ever happened where the presidential race and the Senate race went the exact same direction in almost every state. I think it was every state, meaning that if the Senate candidate, the Senate candidate, like if Trump won the state, the Republican Senate candidate won, and if Clinton won the state, you get the point. So I tend to think in, and there's a lot of evidence that governors' races are, are seen much differently. So Massachusetts, Maryland, Rhode Island, uh, nice, Vermont is what I meant. So Massachusetts, Maryland, and Rhode Island. Uh, I said it twice wrong. Massachusetts, Vermont, and Maryland have Republican governors. Louisiana has a Democratic governor. So I tend to think governors' races are not as partisan, and people people sort of see the governor as the leader of the state and not as who's going to vote for Trump or help Hillary or that kind of thing. So my assumption is in a national race, like a Senate race, in a state that I think Kentucky is like 15 points more Republican than the average state, so I tend to think in that kind of race, in a Senate race like this, that McConnell's a pretty heavy favorite. And remember that Trump will be on the ballot in 2020. So people who come to vote, like I assume Trump will win Kentucky by at least 10 points. So then you have to assume for McGrath to win, there's some number of McGrath Trump voters when McConnell will be saying, Trump supports me when Trump will be saying vote for McConnell. It's just really hard. Like Amy McGrath is obviously trying to figure out how do I win some Trump voters um, in her in their tactics, but this is really hard to see. So I think her fundraising has been great, but it's still going to be a really hard lift for her in this kind of year. In, a, in, a, in 2020, with Trump on the ballot in Kentucky, is going to be hard for a really hard lift for her in my view. Perry, I'm going to do you a favor here and just note for our listeners that Amy McGrath uh, has not won the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate race just no, yet. Well, I, I'm assuming that uh, just based on how much fundraising she has done, and it's interesting, it's an interesting question. I have been struggling with this question a little bit about how you cover a primary where there's no data about polls. We have no real information about the how Charles Booker or the other candidates against McGrath are doing. All we have all we have is fundraising, but we know that metric is kind of weird because the Democratic Senatorial Committee in Washington has basically said Amy McGrath is our candidate, so if you want to give money to somebody in Kentucky, give money to Amy McGrath. So it's not so if, if the Democratic Senatorial Committee said Chris Otts is our candidate, that you get all the money too. So it's not as if I'm not trying to diminish McGrath's fundraising. I think she's done a good job, but that's a metric that's a little bit gained because she's the party establishment candidate. But I tend to assume she is likely to win the primary, so I'm not so I didn't mean to like be offend the other candidates who are running, but I think the odds of them winning is quite low. If, if one of the other candidates who's not McGrath wins, that will be in some ways, at this point, I would be more surprised if one of the other candidates beat McGrath in the primary than if McGrath beat McConnell in the general election. But those are both low odd probabilities, honestly. I was more just trying to save you some angry Twitter oh, right. mentions. Yes. <laughs> As a subscriber to The New Yorker, uh, one of the pet peeves of mine is that by the time the magazine comes in print and I can really dig into a story that I'm really interested in, they've already released it on the website a few days earlier, uh, and I was already reading it 
on my little phone in a much uh, less desirable experience. Uh, but nonetheless, that was the case last night with a piece by Jane Mayer uh, on Mitch McConnell. And we were talking, and I know you read that article as well, and curious what you made of it. You know, I mean, without criticizing Jane Mayer, who's a great journalist, as somebody who like has grew up in Kentucky, lives here now, has covered Mitch McConnell in Washington, I didn't. Ha- there were a lot of like interesting nuggets in there. For example, it, it, uh, the evidence suggests that McConnell has three daughters, and it sounds like they are politically not aligned with him. It sounds like his first wife may be writing a memoir about about and that in part gets into her differences with McConnell in politics. They found a lot of people who used to be in his orbit who are now wary of him. It's, the article sort of gets into his alliance with Trump. And the article's basic thesis is Mitch McConnell only believes in power. And so the thing, so he's now aligned himself with Trump because McCon- because Trump is a powerful person and it helps McConnell get his agenda through, helps him helps him win re-election and that kind of thing. So if you've been watching Mitch McConnell the last four years, none of that is particularly shocking. But I still do think that the core thesis of the article, which I still think is important, if you remember in 2017, in around September or so, there were some times when McConnell and Trump had some pretty sharp disagreements that at times went public. And so I have been struck by what Jane describes, which is that gradually McConnell and Trump have went from this kind of wary kind of like relationship to something where they're very politically aligned and going in the same direction. And if Trump Trump survived, if Trump survived impeachment already, and if he wins re-election, I think there's no been no more important person to Trump's political survival than Mitch McConnell, who has kept the Republicans in the Senate, but also just broadly the Republican Party really behind Trump. Perry, are there any other ways you see sort of political undercurrents in the coronavirus news uh, here locally. So the other thing I mentioned is in terms of the coronavirus, but also in terms of McConnell and Trump is you had over the weekend, uh, the new appoint, the new federal judge here in the, in the, in the Louisville area, his name's Justin Walker. And he is, he was a, I think he was an intern for McConnell. Uh, he was a clerk for uh, Kavanaugh, when Kavanaugh, I believe when Kavanaugh was, in the, was one of, not on the Supreme Court yet, but he was a clerk for Kavanaugh. He's a new appointee. He's already, he's pretty new. He was appointed, you know, six months ago or so. And he's already been nominated for the D.C. Appeals Court, which is like one of, which is probably the most powerful appeals court in the country. And also kind of a ladder to the Supreme Court often. So, and he's 38 years old. He's very young. He was a big defender of Kavanaugh during the confirmation hearings. Anyway, you know, as you know, so so Greg Fisher had this, it wasn't quite an executive order, but he had a policy in which he was trying to limit people from going to services, church services in their cars, where they were supposed to be distant from each other, but had to, but supposed to stay in their cars. There was some worry from Fisher, this might, people might, I guess, get out of their cars and therefore this might help lead to the spread of the coronavirus. So Walker issued, I think this is one of his first, if not his first, but certainly one of his most high profile opinions. And it was very scathing in striking down Fisher's policy. And even some conservatives I saw who were on Twitter were saying the actual legal reasoning was probably fine, but the opinion 
was a bit over the top in its, in its scathing indictments of, of Fisher and its historical references. It sort of seemed a little bit unneeded in terms of its tone. But for, but for Walker, it may actually be, but it goes to the fact that A, Walker is, an, is, is somebody who was appointed by Trump, pushed very hard by Mitch McConnell, and is kind of of this conservative federal society milieu. And I think this opinion, while maybe not help, not being something people in Louisville like, or maybe not something that sort of people who are legal experts necessarily like, it may be something that play, it may be something that Donald Trump actually read himself. And it may be something that helps Walker as he looks to ascend the conservative legal ladder. I don't know, Perry. I was thinking about this earlier. And what's interesting to me is that Judge Walker has already been nominated for this very prestigious uh, seat on the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, one step below the Supreme Court, as you said. And it would seem to me like once you get that nomination, the last thing that you would want to do is rock the boat in any way. So there's two, so I've been thinking about this since it came out. So there's two, there's like, so here's three different theories. You need to get confirmed. So, but there are 53 Republican votes and there are 47 Democratic votes in the Senate. So you just need, so one way to think about this might be if you're Justin Walker and you're worried that maybe the Senate, you know, McConnell wants you to be confirmed. So you're probably going to get confirmed. You're going to get a hearing. That said... If the Democrats, if, if somehow Susan Collins or some of the other sort of more moderate Republicans maybe were not comfortable voting for you or they maybe thought you were too right wing or something like that, I do think writing an opinion that basically cast you as the defender of religious freedom in America, if you're Susan Collins, you really need to vote for Justin Walker to make sure your conservative base I don't think voting against Justin Walker or being under the of Justin Walker is going to, I think his opinion makes it, makes it much harder for any Republican who was maybe not excited about him to, to, to not be there because he picked an issue that is an issue that the conservative base really cares about, wrote about it very passionately, took a strong position. So I think you're right. He was going to be confirmed anyway. So I, I don't think he had to do this. So maybe he just wanted to write this opinion, but I think this, this, in my view, this usually being more controversial is bad. I agree. But in this one case, I do think sort of this might be savvy on his part. You know, I'm not a courts reporter or a lawyer, but in looking at that decision earlier today, there were some things that stood out to me. Uh, it looks like in lightning speed for the judiciary, uh, the judge and his staff uh, went on their own fact-finding mission, introduced a lot of articles. They even uh, listened to, you know, Facebook uh, videos to find quotes from Fisher and, and others at press conferences uh, in generating this incredibly fast opinion. But Mayor Fisher would take to Twitter and say that Metro government wasn't even offered a chance to respond and weigh in. Of course, they are the other side of this case. And had they been offered a chance to respond, they would have pointed out that they didn't actually have a ban on drive-in church services. So there was nothing to restrain in the first place. That's what they would have said. And that part of that thing is probably not good for Walker. It does... 
Like, I think that kind of, like, you know, you're 38, you want, and the, that sort of the eagerness to write the opinion and not hear from the other side, I think you're going to hear about that part in his confirmation hearings. And that's the kind of thing where the Democrats can, the argument the Democrats are likely to make as he goes forward is not, is, because they're not going to win on his judicial philosophy because the Republicans control the Senate. But I think this one thing is like, you didn't let the other side make their core arguments or seem to, under, or seem to like really give them a fair shake is the argument you might hear and you're 38 and you have very little trial experience. I think that might come up down the line. And in that sense, this was unwise for him. I think the one thing that came out though is you could see Thursday, Friday, both there were complaints from conservatives about how both Governor, both Governor Bashir and Mayor Fisher were handling Easter with social distancing. And I think uh, I'll, I'll want to praise Joe Sanka here because I think it was Thursday McConnell put out some statement being critical of how Easter was being handled by those two Democrats. And Joe Sanka tweeted something like, I think there's now a permission structure for Republicans to start criticizing Fisher and Bashir on social distancing. And then right after that, Daniel Cameron made a statement. Rand Paul made a statement. And then Justin Walker's a judge, but he's also in this Republican movement too. This, then this opinion came out. So I do think a little part of this story is that there is some more concern about social distancing on the right than on the left. There's some worries that it's being overdone on the right as opposed to the left. There's been, maybe Bashir and Fisher have been trying to be careful, but they made some decisions on Easter that I thought would maybe partisanize this issue some. And I think that's what you're seeing now. And that's my kind of what I expect to see over this next month. I think we're going to have another fight about social distancing, both Kentucky and nationally, where Republicans are pushing to um, lift some of these limits. And my guess is Democrats will be more inclined to keep the limits on. And they'll be in one side will quote public health experts and one side will quote economic experts. Well, Perry, this has been really fun. And thank you very much for your expertise. And I hope that we can do this again closer to the elections in the fall in a few months. That'd be great. Thank you, Chris. This has been fun. The Uncovered Podcast is a production of WDRB Media. Please subscribe, review, and rate wherever you get your podcasts.